0: today is a great day to start your own podcast whether you're looking for a new marketing channel have a message you want to share with the world or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show podcasting is an easy cost-effective and fun way to expand your online reach buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to promote track and launch your podcast your show can be listed on all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording You can be listed on such directories as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters, just like myself, who are already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Follow the link in the show notes below to get started. This lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you. You will receive a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up with a paid plan and you're helping support the show. Don't let fear hold you back and let's create something great together on Buzzsprout.
1: Impatiently waiting until the smoke clears, tight rope walking between insanity and serenity. I wonder if I can find hope here before the rope tears in the last thread of my misery. I can't escape the fog, the hands of fate grab hold of me, choking me, expose the broken me or what I was supposed to be. A wrong turn at the fork in the road, now I can't turn back. Will the door of opportunity close? Should I make my own path? I know I shouldn't have sold that. A trip away from this foolish paradise to a place where angels with clipped wings make guitar strings sing into the afterlife. For my soul... The devil wants to know what's the asking price. My fall from grace is quick and I'm slipping on black ice. Still searching for solid ground, spiraling, I'm falling down. Is really my calling now? Does it still make my heart pound? Standing on stage, staring out at the crowd. But it's nothing but empty seats. Do I do it for them or do I do it for me? Do I do it for inner peace or do I do it to be free? Just breathe. Because I want to take your breath away. Well, I welcome you all to my palace of shame and introduce you all to my marriage to pain. Carrying the shadow that I battled to change and the world was ugly. I rose from the ashes of a junkie. Used to load up in the bathrooms of donkeys. Now I'm getting high at the crowds in front of me. Like the applause of Fix only fit for a druggie. So I take a hit. the people screaming they love me for that one shining moment. These dark skies become sunny. I forget about the nights I was alone. Roaming the streets. and so no place to go. No place to call home. Raising a broken child on my own. And you wonder why I got stoned. Chemicals number my sharp senses. How many nights is a park bench is A story with the top wrenching when I stopped vetting. The ghosts of my past coming back for vengeance, syringes saying use me and you won't end up back behind barbed wire fences, but I'm against this. So I pull a piece of paper on and let my pen bleed for you to remember me. Even if my physical presence is deceased, the essence of my being will never leave. Inside these words, please cherish me for my soul to be set free is more than just a memory.
0: Welcome to the Drunken Worm Podcast. Each week, I will be bringing you dynamic content that will educate and inspire. This podcast was created to talk to mental health professionals about addiction, recovery, and their own personal stories that can help inspire us to become better people and live healthier lives. Alrighty, you are listening to the Drunken Worm Podcast. My name is Carl, the host and the creator of this show, and you just heard Matthew Gunham and his poetry, And he is our guest on the show today. Happy Tuesday, everybody. And for everybody that is out there listening, I appreciate you taking the time to take the notice of our show and to gather and to celebrate recovery with us. Every day, you can make your life a little bit better. One day clean, one day sober, however you want to look at it. Matthew, welcome to the show, brother. We're really happy to have you on, man. Hey, thank
1: you, man. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor.
0: Yeah, brother. Man, that was powerful. I love that man. That was so good. Right?
1: You know, you hear poetry and you're like, Oh, you know, rose of red, violets are blue, I'm a drug addict, you're so you, you know.
0: So yeah. basic
1: rhymes and then you come out with that a little out of the left field and yeah, man. hit him over the head with it.
0: Yeah, dude. You were talking about those shadows that you're carrying on your back and then pulling out that paper and just putting it all down, you know, and, and just releasing your soul from that, man. That that was really, really powerful, brother. I really appreciate yeah. you sharing that with us, man.
1: Yeah, no. I mean you know, writing is is this freedom that I have, you know, when I get to put my thoughts and my feelings down on a piece of paper, it's like the best way for me to express myself because I don't necessarily communicate on like a personal level, like emotional level. Um, you know, I've gotten better over time, but I still struggle on like the intimate, very close uh, type of communication, but I can always put it down on a piece of paper and filter it out, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. It's it's the power of writing, right? Because when we mm-hmm. take all that stuff that we have going on up here in our head and we put it out on paper, man, it takes the power out of it. Yeah. And it allows us to release all of that shit that we have inside of us and just mm-hmm. be like, you know what? Fucking I'm done with this bullshit, yeah. man. You know?
1: Yeah, because yeah. a lot of times we would sit there and not probably talk, not express, not not say what's going all on, right. just let it eat at us, eat at us, eat at us. And well, what do we do when we're going through stuff like that? What well, we use, you yeah. know what I mean? Like that's how we comfort kind of the voices inside, that that void, the, the the anvil that sits on your chest, you know, black cloud that hangs over your head. You don't talk Absolutely. about it. We go drinking and, and, and we do drugs to to try to escape. Yeah, you know? man.
0: Yeah. And, and, and it's that comfort that we have with the substances that we like to use, be it alcohol mm-hmm. or drugs or you yeah. know, what, whatever that person's choice is behind that blanket that they wrap around themselves. And in fact, I was on my last episode with Dr. Yusuf and we were talking about that blanket, that mm-hmm. electric blanket that you wrap around yourself. And it makes you feel good because the substances are how you and I used to cope with the world. It's, yeah. it's how we used to deal with shit man with everything with everything man just you know fucking waking up man i gotta yeah. deal with this bullshit yeah, oh exactly. you better let me go get high man because this is going to be a bullshit day if i can't get my fix right and then it just so spirals out, out of it. yeah spirals downhill from there man mm-hmm. you know so cool brother so you live over in boston yeah, right. I see Boston. the hat, man.
1: Right out, right outside of Boston. Yeah, I don't, I don't live in the city. Okay, I'm not going to go throw in the town because <laughs> none of you is going to know where North Redden is. So, a little north of Boston. Man.
0: Okay, nice, man. Mm-hmm. Nice. You know, I've I've been over to Boston and Rhode, uh, Rhode Island and okay. um, Providence, and and I just love the area over there, man. It's so mm-hmm. just historical, yeah. and it's it's such a different vibe in that area from anywhere else in the U.S. that I've traveled. Yeah. But the vibe in Boston is like this kind of real hipster vibe, but you all also celebrate the history of Boston yeah. and deep in the culture with sports. You got your um your socks hat on well, we today. Had, we had deep rooted. You know, deep rooted, man. Yeah. The Celtics, right? The so- Red Sox. All of them. Red Sox, Red Sox Patriots, Celtics, man. Bruins. It's crazy, man.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know,
0: just the history behind the sports with your city, man. It's it's really yeah. awesome, man. And I was listening to the interview with Shane on there, and um, I decided not to wear my Boston hat because you know I <laughs> I didn't want to. Yeah, because he, he said he had his on. He had to go change because yeah. you know
1: we're what six hour plane ride away. Right, he was rocking a Red Sox hat. I was yeah. when I popped on. See, everything I do, I try to I try to bring something. Um, you know, whether it's the city with the hat, whether yeah. it's, you know, the business with the shirt, yeah. um, you know, I used to perform all over the country. Mm-hmm. And, but we have like this, this, we're very prideful of the area that we're from, you know, in our community.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, when we go out to like, I don't know, I, I featured uh, performing in New York City at the New Euregan Cafe, which is like a world-famous poetry mm. spot. And yeah. I would always go in with a Red Sox shirt and a Red Sox hat on nice, because we got, you know, that thing with the, with New Yorkers, whether it's the yeah. Yankees, the Giants that, that broke right. our hearts a couple times. Right. You know, I got to bring my city everywhere that I go. You yeah. Know, I want to I make sure people, you know, all that kids from Boston. Yeah, so. man.
0: Well, you got to mm-hmm. represent. That's for sure, man. And you do it yeah. well, brother. You do it I real well. Man, I was surfing on your Instagram and you have a beautiful family too. I have to say, man, you know, you got a great family and, and I love all your posts, super inspirational. Uh, Obviously um, for people that that didn't take notice, you are a master poet, um, (laughs) you know, doing lyrical rhymes about recovery, doing lyrical rhymes about life and the journey that you've had to take, which is amazing. Um, You are also the CEO of Aftermath treatment, mm-hmm. uh, over in Massachusetts. And we're yep. going to talk a little bit about that program because that's really mm-hmm. cool too, man. You know, I, I love talking. Uh, I don't want to necessarily say talking shop to other people that You're are right. in the industry, but I love talking to other but people. But even Just are, the
1: approach. Yeah. I'm man. sure. I know for, for, for us out here, we, we definitely have a unique approach and that's something that makes us stand out. We absolutely we really try to incorporate our personal experiences, community mm-hmm. and mixed in with the clinical and try to put people in a position to succeed. And yeah. we don't ever try to, like, sell people on a dream. Like, no statistics. I, I think statistics are, are bullshit. Yeah. When treatment centers will throw them out there. Like, if you put the work in, you're going to get the results. Right. And it's on you. It's not on anybody else. Yeah. We can guide and advise you, but you're the one that has to put the work in, build your network, take action, mm-hmm. and kind of process the different things that you're going to go through. And yeah. we're there to support, you know, each and every person. So... I'm sure the perspective might be a little different, you know, compared to like the suit and tie places. Right. Institutions.
0: Yeah. I've I've done both, man. Like I, I work mm-hmm. at a family facility now and it's family run. It's been around for over 30 years. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we got 20, 26 beds now. Yeah, and yeah. you know it's it's really small it's really intimate um but you know when i took this job man i was looking at how they've retained their staff over the years and there's nobody there that that hasn't worked there for less than like six or seven years
1: yeah and that's unheard huge of, people man. yeah people don't a lot of businesses grow and then they 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 start taking for granted the people that are in their systems right. they don't want to take care of them and for, for one of the, the the things that I try to focus on is, is staff retention. Because mm-hmm. when you have a flow of people, you know what I mean? Yeah. Those familiar faces, you kind of know what to expect from everybody. You focus on their strengths instead of their right. weaknesses. You know, we got a guy that, that brings fire to every group that he runs. He's real energetic. Nice. Um, but he's a little older, so he types a little slower. Mm-hmm. So we focus on, you know. The energy he brings to the clients and, and building them up. And then we, you know, we try to build up, you know, some of the shortcomings. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. That's awesome, the client
1: retention is huge. I mean, our staff retention is huge when you're trying to run, like, a place where people get better at. Yeah. Because you have too many new faces. The client, like, the people that are in treatment, it's like, oh, you got a new person. Well, what happened yeah. to the last one? Always. Oh, always they notice, man. It's like. It's huh?
0: it's they notice so much. Yeah, the exactly. And then they start yeah. talking amongst themselves, and that's even worse, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Man, you know, I changed my counselor again." And yeah. you know, they've only been there for like sixty days, and maybe they've had two yeah. counselors in that time, and that's so detrimental. And that, su- to their that recovery. sucks in itself, like right, did,
1: dude? When you start and you like when you get somebody to open up, yeah, it's already hard hard as it is. To, to get somebody to express different things, trauma, whatever it is that they're trying to mask with the drink or their drug. Mm-hmm. And then you rip that person out yeah. after two or three weeks when they might just be opening that door. Right. And then, oh, you're stuck with a new person and they're going to shut that door immediately. And, and I already put in this work with this other person and I was yeah. written off. Uh, you know they feel like they're not you know a priority. You mm-hmm. just pawning me off to the next person. Yeah, it's like there's there's, there's something that means it, this it means something to have the continuity. Absolutely. Uh, when you're dealing with a therapist, a clinician, kind of like the team that you're working with, you want to yeah. have those familiar faces. You don't want just a revolving door of personnel.
0: Exactly. Exactly, man. You know? And if that's that's. I, I just love how you say all that, man, because that's like, mm-hmm. that's like my core ethos is, you know, yep. like, you know, we, we take a, a, a pledge to do no harm to our clients mm-hmm. and how harmful is it to rip somebody out of a, um yep. out of a relationship with the client and the therapist or the clinician. And now mm-hmm. they're having to go through a breakup essentially yeah and exactly. um, you know they're in the grieving process because man i just was able to open up to this person and now i've got somebody else new that i yeah. don't even know and the level of trust for addicts too i mean you that oh, we don't trust anybody no we don't trust anybody man you're gonna put somebody new in front of me okay good i'm yeah. gonna shut the fuck up and sit here then i'm not yeah. gonna tell you anything when i
1: was when i was early on I, I so i was 19 years old i found my best friend hanging in the bathroom i was wow. sleeping on his couch uh, extreme pain, uh, his mother woke me up screaming, like the, the the most heartbreaking scream you could ever imagine. And I relived those moments for a long time, and I got high trying to block it out. And my early attempts at trying to do therapy and programs is I would sit and give details of it and put my arms up because mm-hmm. I had this wall, like, you're not going to break through this. Yeah, And, like, just even trying to work with people that changed, like, I would be difficult to that therapist to go to the next therapist. I'd be a pain in the ass to that one. It actually took somebody that, that you know, for me at least, somebody who had personal experience, ran like I did, and kind of was like, I see through your tough guy bullshit. Right. So let's let's get down to to what's really going on yeah. a, instead of like, you know. But I needed the continuity. I had that guy. That guy was my counselor for six months in the halfway house right. that I went through. Like, I needed his support. I'm not sure I'm sitting here with you. Right. if I didn't have that guy chipping away day in and day out and not having it switched to the next person.
0: Yeah, man. You know, it's uh, those relationships that we form in treatment. And it's it's not only the relationships that we form with the peers that we're going through treatment mm-hmm. with, which are very strong, but also the client relationship that we have with the counselor, or the therapist, or the clinician mm-hmm. that is also just as strong. And yeah. so, you know, and the sign of a good clinician is somebody that is um respected with the clients Mm -hmm. but doesn't demand respect you know the respect is earned by how they treat the clients the respect is earned by um the way that they approach clients and they treat them like humans versus numbers that are coming into the system
1: that's one of the biggest things that that shaped our approach is uh when i first tried getting into treatment i always was treated like i was a piece of shit like, I yep. didn't already know going into a detox or the emergency room or the halfway house or the outpatient IOP. Mm-hmm. Like, I know I'm not a good person at this point. Yeah. I don't need you to belittle me and down talk me and act like you're some superior human being. Right. And that I'm not human. I am a junkie because yeah. that's how, you know, everything used to be for me. Mm-hmm. I go, you know. You go to an IOP, you would, you couldn't talk to certain people, the guy that ran it or the executive, you couldn't talk to him because he was too good. You know, some suit and tie walking around. Um, I just, I always resented that, that type of mentality, you know, like you have to have a good approach with, with the people that you're, you're trying to work with. Like you you know, if you can't connect with somebody and just open those those pathways where you you gain a little bit of trust, where they can mm-hmm. open up to you and you can have a, a deep conversation on something, yeah, you know, you're not going to get that out of a book. Yeah, so
0: definitely not, man. Definitely you know? not. Also, the material that we're showing them too, and and inside mm-hmm. of these um, programs that we run, you know, especially in California, a lot of our material that is presented is often shown within the criminal justice system. So if they do program inside of jail or prison, you know, they could very well be doing the same exact program and the same yeah. exact workbooks and all that. Well the it other gets stuff, repetitive. Man. Oh it's so repetitive, man. Wiki repetitive. So repetitive. Uh, there's a good program out there. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's called R1 Learning, and mm-hmm. it's a evidence-based model. But it is something that coincides with um, the Matrix model, um, the Hazleton mm-hmm. model, and um, you know these different programs that we run inside of our treatment centers. But it takes it and it flips it right. So now it's yeah. more interactive rather than just filling out a work page, which we've all done.
1: Yeah. Now we have the times. interaction.
0: They get cards, they can pull mm-hmm. words off of the cards, and then it makes it more interactive for them. Mm-hmm. So after, after the show, I'll give you some information on that. Bro. Okay, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, it's it's a really good, really good uh, program to have that will coincide with other modalities and other um, evidence-based uh, things that you guys might be doing, so. Mm-hmm. Um, cool, brother. Yeah, so man, so really good to have you on the show, like I said, and can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how did you find recovery? What was that point for you like when you were in your active addiction and kind of like, you know, just giving up and saying, you know, I've had enough?
1: Yeah, I mean, I tried getting clean at various different points in my life. First attempt I tried getting clean was my sophomore year in high school. I got kicked out of two schools my freshman year, entered my third high school, kind of put the drugs down. I was an athlete, so I played sports Mm -hmm. my sophomore and junior year, got kicked out my senior year, my third high school Cause I was a real classy kid way back when. Mm. Um, But like the drug, like the lifestyle drugs, like everything around it was, was basically what revolved around my life from like a young age. And then when I was 16 years old, my mother threw me out of my house. So I didn't have like accountability, like a curfew. Mm -hmm. I stayed with like, you know, I would stay with somebody for a few months until I burned my bridge there because I wasn't, they wanted me home at at a certain time and I wouldn't show up. And eventually I'd have that, you know, I'd show up and they'd be like, yeah, Matt, you can't stay here anymore and go to the next couch or a friend would let me stay in a basement. So I kind of like did my own thing for a long time. You know, no real restrictions. I looked up to a lot of older kids that like had nice cars that sold drugs, good looking women. Um, I liked that type of lifestyle. I was addicted to it. Um, You know, the drug use, like, I I like to get high. Like, I like to not be in my own skin. It gave me a confidence. It gave me, um, you know, it just it fulfilled a lot of things that I felt like I was lacking in social situations when you didn't have drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, I got involved with Oxycontin.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, obviously, there was drugs and stuff before that. But once I tried an OC80, yeah, it was like... That was like heaven on earth. Uh, That gave me the confidence to go fight anybody I had a problem with, to go hit on the hardest girl around. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it made me feel like I was Superman. And, uh, you know, when you you feel that and you start doing it, like I struggled with ecstasy for a period of time when I was doing it every day. And every morning Mm -hmm. I would wake up with a back pain and I was suicidal, right? When you would wake up after doing an 80, in the beginning there was no after effects. I was perfectly fine. It wasn't like anything really lingering, obviously you ended up dope sick when she started doing it every day, but mm-hmm. the initial part, I didn't have any of that, you know, any, any real, real consequences in the beginning. So, um, ultimately, you know, I started doing OCs on the weekends, got influenced by some friends that I was hanging out with, started selling them. I was a monkey that sold bananas. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I thought I was some big drug dealer. I wasn't. I sold to support a habit. Yeah. Um, you know, got high. And, uh, you know, everybody around me was doing it. Like, my entire group of friends. Like, it was so socially acceptable. When you look back, like, none of us really thought we were doing synthetic heroin in a pill. None of us thought that, you know... This little OC80 that we were splitting in the beginning would lead us down to IV heroin, homelessness, jails. Mm -hmm. You know, I got friends doing life. I got friends that are buried. Like, there's not a lot of people that that I hung around with at that period of time that are still alive right now. Yeah. And um, way back then, it was just all fun and games. Um, You know, at 18, I had my own apartment. Uh, My apartment was raided by the OC task force. (laughs) Mm. um not not the best at i wasn't a good drug addict i wasn't a good drug dealer i mm-hmm. wasn't a good criminal i would get caught all the time it was just a miserable miserable period of time so I ended up getting evicted from my first apartment and um i'm staying on my boy james's couch I was telling you this before the show started yeah. going live and on uh, September 1st 2004 um i was i woke up and he was hanging in the bathroom and um he was somebody that had already progressed to heroin He was like the first one in our group that like dabbled into it because Mm -hmm. before uh, heroin was this filthy, disgusting junky, loser word. Like it was, it was so disgusting. We all thought we were better than like, I was a wicked better than drug addict and detoxes. The first times I would go. Cause I'd be on eighties. Like I'm never going to end up like you. I'm better than you. I'm never going to stick a needle in my arm. I'm never going to smoke crack. What I get is made by doctors and they know what they're doing. And, uh, James ended up, you know, he he started doing dope a little bit ahead of time and, and had some things happen and ultimately he ended up taking his own life and uh, I had to take him down. And when you go through something like that, like I had a really bad drug problem before mm-hmm. and it's not his fault that my problems got worse after. But what I did to self-medicate and to cope with some of the struggles that I was going with was I kept getting high. And now I got high with such a purpose because I didn't care about living and I didn't care mm-hmm. about anybody around me, whether they lived or died. I was absolutely ripping and running, um, you know, from that point on. The crime started getting worse. and went from selling drugs to to, I I started being like a stick-up kid. I was holding up Mm -hmm. corner stores with a buddy of mine, Dougie, and, um, you know, just kind of living this absolutely insane lifestyle. And at the time, I lived off of the reputation. Matt was a drug dealer. Matt's a stick-up kid, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, mind you. You take away the drugs, and I'm, scared. I'm like this terrified boy trapped inside a young man's body that, like, I wouldn't do any of that stuff with a clear mind. But you put the drugs in me, it's like, you know, all bets are off. You know, I had to get high by any means necessary. And um, OCs got taken off the market. Uh, they got pulled for a period of time. Mm-hmm. We couldn't find any of them on the streets. Around my area, there were signs on pharmacies that said, we do not carry Oxycontin. Do not, because so many pharmacies were getting robbed at the time yeah. that they, they flat out put these big poster boards outside the door. Like, don't come in wow. here because we do not have what you're trying to rob us for. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this kid, old, another older kid who, uh, was already doing dope. He approached me with a bag of heroin and I was pissing out my ass, dealing with hot and cold sweats and it could have been anything. He told me it was going to make me feel better. And I did it. Mm-hmm all that pretense of how disgusting and filthy the word heroin is went right out the window. You know? And uh, and I sniffed it. And once you realize that 400 dollars in pills, yeah, was the equivalent of 40 dollars in a bag of dope. Right. A co- you know, common economics come into play and you know, I stopped doing pills even when they came back around it was like all right, I'm sniffing dope. Yeah. And then my you know, the chameleon, the, the ability to adapt to any situation, my mm-hmm. hustle, you know, I went right back to that monkey of so banana. So I was one of the first people that did dope. I had a dope connect. I started selling dope mm-hmm. and I would sell it. And ultimately, you know, I would do all of my profits. Now at this time, um, some, some issues started coming up. There was a girl that I ended up supposedly getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, I got stabbed in the shoulder and a guy tried to kill me. Uh you'd think that would stop me from selling or doing drugs. It didn't. Um ultimately I ended up getting arrested. I got set up by uh, the knock unit. Mm. And um yeah, I mean I got a class A distribution arrest. Wow. And uh my buddy's mother was the one that set me up. And um I hadn't I hadn't done I hadn't shot heroin at that point. Mm. And uh right after I got uh bailed out. Uh, the next, the very next day was the first time I shot heroin, and uh, I was at a pizza spot in this town, Medford, and that same kid that introduced me to dope, I was in the bathroom with my arm out, and he just stuck the needle in, wow. you know, and it gave me that feeling that, like, I clearly had been wasting all this dope sniffing it, because now right. at this point, my my tolerance had been built up again, you know, but then when you feel that rush of the needle, it's like another... You know, it's just something else that you're going to chase, chase that feeling, chase that rush. And, um, you know, I ended up going on a ripper. I was on a suicide mission. I was smoking crack, shooting crack. Um, I tried to get clean here and there because I got this baby on the way. I ended up getting locked up for, for the majority of the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And um, the baby was born the day before I got out of jail. The day after I get out of jail, I go right to the hospital. I got pictures in the hospital with the baby. And mind you, the whole time I'm like, "Hey, I gotta get, I gotta get my life together. Like, I got this kid on the way. At this point, like, I was like, still couch hopping. I didn't really have family around. I'm like, I really have to get my life together. Mm -hmm. And um, ultimately, the baby didn't end up being mine. I got a paternity test, and uh, it ended up being one of my best friends. Wow. And uh, what do you do when you go through moments like that? We celebrate. So all yeah. that, I need to get clean. Shit went out the window. Right. I'm still on trial. Um, you know, I, I kept getting stipulated to detoxes, to, to programs. And again, once you remove the drugs from me, I was a terrified human being. So I would show up to these halfway houses and fight or flight situations. I mm-hmm. would run before I could even unpack my bags. Because right. I look around and, I, you know, I was a young kid at the time trying to get into these places at 18, 19, 20. And uh, you see these these monster of men that are 30, 40 years old. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not sticking around for this. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll deal with the courts later. Go get high until I get picked up on a warrant. Ultimately, my rock bottom, um, I burned every bridge. Couldn't talk to anybody. Uh, my, my family wouldn't even answer the phone calls because I would just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I need a place to stay. But I need mm-hmm. money. They let me stay there and I would take from them. Um you know, they were just sick and tired of my bullshit. I had no friends at this time because I burned every one of them. Um, you know, I didn't care what or how I had to get high. I would step over any and everybody on my path to use. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was sleeping, had to toe on a futon with my best friend, Eddie. And uh, we would get high together. we get high with his mother. His mother had just gotten out after doing five years in prison. And I would give her heroin as my way to pay for rent. And she would let us stay there. And uh, Eddie ended up getting into this program through drug court, the Hamilton house, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, a really difficult halfway house. And um, at that point, like I was on a suicide mission. And He knew it. He knew that every time we scored, I was trying to not wake up every morning. Right. Like That was my goal every day. Um, I had a couple suicide attempts. I couldn't pull the trigger. I had a belt around my throat. And I couldn't let go. Um, I wanted to pass peacefully in my sleep because I was I was terrified of of the actual the action of going through it. but I didn't want to wake up every morning every morning I wake up and it would be like that hopelessness would hit me like, damn, I gotta peel myself off, I gotta go figure out how I'm gonna get forty a hundred dollars, mm-hmm. like whatever I had to do, I gotta go get a needle because back when I was getting high, like I don't know what it is in California, but in mass yeah. you can get needles at pharmacies. Oh, yeah. When I was getting high, you had to go to a needle exchange. I was only open for certain hours, Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't open and you had something, I didn't care. We would try to bleach it, rinse it. Right. I'm going to, we, we shared, you know, I shared needles. I got hep C from it. Um, but like, I just didn't, I didn't want to live. And, um, he, he would call me from this place telling me that I need to, I need to get in here. This is going to change my life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I went and visited him with, with his little sister. And this is how ignorant self, and selfish and self-centered I was, As I showed up to his halfway house with 20-something guys trying to get their shit together. Mm. And I was so jammed I couldn't even open my eyes. Wow. Like, no care in the world about anybody else. His little sister was like 17 years old. Mind you, like, I'm drooling on myself, taking buses and trains with her to go to this fucking place. And, like, again, no care for anybody, um, you know, is what it is. So, ultimately, I was dope sick for a couple of days, and his mother's loading up a needle in front of me, and I'm fucking dying for for what she has. Mm-hmm. And uh, she turns to me, and she goes, Matt, you got a fucking problem. You need to go and get help. And then she proceeded to shoot up. And I remember I, I ended up going to the bathroom, Right after she did that. And it was like the first time I actually took a look at myself. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh I didn't I couldn't tell you who was looking back at me. You know, I was a skeleton. I didn't shower. I didn't brush my teeth. I weighed about 130, 140 pounds, mm-hmm. like looked like death, like skeletal. And in that moment, for some some reason, I got hit with this feeling that this is like I need to I want to live more than I want to die for that moment. And like where I live, when you're calling public detoxes, mm-hmm. there's no red carpet that they roll out for you. No. There's nobody trying to find the bed for you the way they do it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you call and they don't have a bed, they tell you to call back in an hour and they yeah. don't give you any, there's no waiting list. You just call. And if you want right. it bad enough, you'll call enough times till you get the bed or yeah. you won't. And it's no skin off my back. It was like the first time I'd ever called. And on the first phone call, they were like, yeah, we got a bag. Come in before 11 o'clock, right? I ended up dragging my bag of bones to this detox collapse in the emergency room because I just got high before. And, uh, you know, ultimately, that rock bottom ended up being the last time I ever got high. Wow. Ended up going through detox. I got scheduled with a halfway house, had to stay in a shelter for a couple days, sleeping with my sneakers as my pillow, Mm. you know, ended up in this halfway house that I wasn't supposed to get a bed in. But again, this like miraculous moment happened where the guy came out, brought me in and was like, where are you going to go if you leave here? I go, I'm going to go get high and turn myself in because like I'm tired of running. Like I'm just tired of this shit. And he told me to sit down at this group table that we would do groups in and uh, never told me to leave. I was there at seven in the morning. He stormed in huffing and puffing. He was this big six five monster, was a former mm-hmm. DEA agent, did 10 years in prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was huffing and puffing, walking through the house, brought me in. And uh, at seven o'clock that night, he had never told me to leave and brought a pillow and a blanket out and said, you clearly want this. I'm going to give you a shot. Right? And I had warrants out at the time he ended up going to my court date saying, you know, this kid's in, in in this halfway house. Like, let's give him a chance. I was 21 years old at the time. And, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that these these certain things just fell into place for me. And uh, I'm sure you heard, possibly heard on the last podcast, but in that house, you sat by seniority. So mm-hmm. I was at the front of the table. So when he's running a group and asking questions, <laughs> Right.
0: Front and Everybody's
1: center. answering. So I finally got the courage. It took me a couple of days. He asked a question. I try to answer it. He goes, How long have you been in here? I go, oh, three weeks. He goes, Shut the fuck up. I'm like, <laughs> I'm never speaking again. I'm never talking to anybody. <laughs> and uh, you know, he's a very uh intimidating man, mm-hmm. especially at that period of time. And um, you know, one of the things that that I did when I was a kid was I wrote poetry and uh that moment I was like, yeah, I'm never speaking again, but I'm going to start writing everything. And I started writing, uh, you know, one or two pieces a day. And that's where like, I rediscovered a love that I had. So you mix that situation with the fact that I couldn't communicate with the six, five juice monkey that just did 10 years of prison. <laughs> Be like, yo bro, I'm having a really bad day. My emotions are all over the place. I'm riddled with guilt. Like, can we talk about it? All right. And, uh, you know, so what I would do is I would write and uh, a piece of paper will never judge you. And, you know, from that, fortunately I went through that halfway house. Like that gave me a lot of structure that I was lacking. You know, I, I, I tapped in a little bit about being homeless at 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Like when you run the streets and there's nobody telling you like, this is what we need you to do. Like I had free reign for, for yeah. years and years with no consequence. They taught structure and, and, and they taught me skills that I needed to, to like actually be an adult and not mm-hmm. be some knucklehead hoodlum, you know, that that just can survive off of getting high. And, um, you know, the house did wonders for me, um, you know, rediscovered my love for poetry. And, you know, I ended up getting out of there, moved into a sober house. And like the poetry ended up really, really taking off of me. Um, I started sharing with like my friends on my way to meetings or on my way to the job site and like people kept pushing me like yo you have some really you know you have some pretty cool cool stuff you got there you should probably try to try to do it and then uh one day i was just like i was tired of living the way that i was living um right after i got clean um i met this girl and i ended up it, it, we only were dating for a short amount of time and she ended up becoming pregnant with my son and so i got i went from being in the streets getting high, homeless to a halfway house, to a soap house, to finding out I got this kid on the way. I had no license, uh, barely made a living wage Mm. at the time. And, um, you know, I was like really motivated to try to at least attempt to live a life that was different than punching a ticket. And, um, you know, I made a decision like I'm going to, I'm going to try to chase poetry and, and turn it into something. And, uh, you know, when I was getting high, like people weren't really out there being like, yo, you can get clean. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really anybody that talked about it. Cause a lot of it, you know, you can't, there's anonymity. Like you can't share your story. We don't want you in public. We don't want you right. to be in the public. eye. like, so there wasn't anybody that said, Hey, you could do this. When I got high, the options were jail or death. Yeah. You know, there wasn't any recovery being promoted when I was younger. And, um, you know, when I started putting my poetry out there was something that was relatable to people and the way that, it, you know, the people, um, took it in, it gave them hope. You know what I mean? And like, I started doing like little open mics and like putting, I put some videos out on YouTube mm-hmm. and just started building. Mm-hmm. And like, I kinda, you know, one of the things in life and in success is, is if you put the same type of hustle, into your life that you did into getting high, you will be incredibly successful. And like, I started chasing after like my dream in that same fashion. So anytime I ended up splitting with my son's mom, anytime I didn't have him, I was like, I was out at an open mic. I was hosting events. I was Mm -hmm. performing and I was just trying to, you know, just trying to get my words out there. And um, I started doing recovery events. I started speaking to like state reps and doing advocacy work Mm -hmm. Um, Started forming like nonprofits and, and, you know, we, every city has like funding and you have to do it by certain data collection and like things that don't really do anything for like Mm -hmm. the recovery community. Right. So like early stages before when I first like just started working in the field, um, you know, I started working with like a couple nonprofits. We started putting together like kickball tournaments, Mm -hmm. uh, recovery basketball tournaments, uh, candlelight vigils, memorials you know, kind of like open mic speaker jam, mm-hmm. different things that were bringing people out where it was like, yeah, not knocking meetings, but it's like, this is like an activity. This is something, yeah. you know, that we can all get together and kind of build with. And, um, you know, a lot of it stemmed from like, you know, my way with words and mm-hmm. like performing. And, you know, it's been a cool, cool, pretty cool journey. In 2011, I put a book out called the shadow of an Attic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a collection of poetry Um, I started speaking for like colleges and high schools, um, you know, and then I ended up getting into the field working in treatment and, you know, you mix that in with, with having two kids, uh, an incredible, like sober network. Like Mm -hmm. I surround myself with successful people. Like that's something that, that when I was younger, my mother would always tell me my friends were like scumbags, and I'd be like, "Nah, ma, they're great kids." And she'd be like, "You are who you hang out with." Well, I was a scumbag too, so right? you know. As you get older, you realize that 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 is such a legitimate statement. Like yeah. you are who you hang around with. So, like, when I identify people in my life, I'm looking at like, what can we, what can what what can we contribute together that's going right. to benefit both of us. Like I want to be around successful people. I want to be around people that have sustained recovery, not saying that I don't want to help the newcomer mm-hmm. or somebody in the early stages because I do, but like I surround myself with such a strong network of people that even in like my hard times to recovery, I've been able to like lean on them mm-hmm. and not have fear of judgment that I can pick up the phone at three in the morning, tossing and turning. They'll get up, they'll talk shit because that's what we do. And they'll be there to listen when right. I have like my little <laughs> emotional meltdowns or my fears of of new challenges that I was facing or, right. or opportunities that were coming up or, or shortcomings. And that's something that like, you know, it took years to like cultivate with the right people and mm-hmm. learn some, you know, not everybody's gonna be in your corner. There's gonna be people that fall off. And um, you know, ultimately, um the poetry opened up doors and mm-hmm. opened up me working in treatment, doing a bunch of grassroots stuff. And, um, in 2016, the second place that I worked for gave me the opportunity to build a program in Massachusetts Mm -hmm. from the ground up. And when you go back, I didn't go to college. I didn't have any education. I didn't have any knowledge. And, um, but he gave me the chance and I was like, this is going to be the life changing moment and I'm going to take it and run with it. And, um, Mm -hmm. A lot of times he asked me things like, uh, you know, oh, we need to get this and we need to get that. And I had no idea how to do it. Hmm. But what does any drug addict do when it's time to get high or it's time to get drunk
0: and get we our hustle away? Right.
1: Yeah. I'm never, never once that I wake up and say, oh, I'm not going to get it right. The mentality was always, I'm going to figure out a way. I'm going to lie, cheat and steal to make sure that by the end of the night, I'm nodding out, enjoying my little mm-hmm. escape from this miserable world, miserable existence that I was living. In. Yeah. And, uh, Yeah, we ended up taking off and uh, we built one of the best programs that the state ever had. And we had such a community. We were talking earlier about retention. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy that I was partners with ended up expanded over time. And he had such horrible retention everywhere else. We had like the best retention on staff because it was a family. Right. And that's like the approach that I always have, whether it's staff or clients. You're part of our family. You know, you can lean and talk to any and every one of us. So we ended up, I ended up running, owning um, this facility in Mass. And uh, for five years, we were like one of the, you know, the places people wanted to go to. We were at every, you know, recovery event. And um, unfortunately, through through difficult times, you know, I got kind of stabbed in the back and blindsided. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in a moment, I'm in, I've been helping people for years. I've been helping people since before I got into treatment. And uh there's a brutal side of business that unfortunately I've had to experience. Mm-hmm. And uh I was very uh I thought I had a friendship more so than just a business partnership. And uh and again, going back to like my using, like I got ratted on, I got set up, I had yeah. I've been pointed out in court, I got stabbed, dude tried to kill me. Uh, I've had some really bad things happen to me from mm-hmm. other people. There's nothing that's been dirtier than getting stabbed in the back through the situation. And right. um, going through that, I have kids. And my livelihood got taken from me. Mm. Right? And for about three hours after I had a meltdown and uh Maybe a couple. Like I don't like a victim mentality. Mm-hmm. I like a victim mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't do the the oh woe is me shit. For for a little bit, it, it kind of started creeping in, and then right after, it's like all right, no, I am. This is going to be a launching point. Right. I don't know what the hell, how the hell I'm going to get this next thing up and running, but I'm yeah. going to do everything in my power to make sure that 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 our approach and what we were doing to help people is going to continue in this next spot. And uh, that's where we came up with aftermath. And Aftermath was the aftermath of that situation. The phoenix was rising out of the ashes of it. That's right. And as a writer, I use the rebirth of the phoenix a lot as a metaphor for being reborn from the ashes of an addict. Um, so it was only right that, that the phoenix was our logo, um, you know, for people to rise out of their addiction and become mm-hmm. something beautiful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had some really low points right after ultimately going back to my network. Like when you build a, a solid network, like I had my friends carry me through some of the darkest moments and all the fears, doubts and insecurities would creep in, Or I would think like, is this really going to be, you know, as good as it was mm-hmm. like, yeah. So many people that's that, that had success that like are now a part of our lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, is that going to translate. Or was that, you know, I don't know. Just, you, you go through a lot. And, uh, Ultimately, we ended up opening up after, Aftermath Addiction Treatment Center. I got some fancy letters after my name, CEO, which is <laughs> wild because, you know, I I just never pictured, like I'm sitting in my own office. And uh, I never, ever in a million years, if you went back and looked at, talked to 18-year-old knucklehead me, or, mm-hmm. you know, or 20, <laughs> right. to ever say I would ever be in an office, they would laugh at me. Right. You know, I, I never pictured making a past 21. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, we came over with a core, a really solid core of people. Oh, excuse me. Of people that genuinely give a fuck mm-hmm. about somebody and their well-being and helping them get better. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a huge shout out to my entire team. Um, from Joe Papa to, to Jenna, Johnny, Hillary, Nikki, Jamie, uh, Jackie, Tara. I mean, we have like such a core of people that just like, you know, we'll go above and beyond Rob, Rob G, um, you know, and it's the approach. We were talking Mm -hmm. about it a little bit earlier. Like when you approach somebody as a human being, you treat them with love and compassion. Like there's not data that you can back up showing love and listening and, and a little bit extra attention. Like you can't you can't compute that in evidence based treatment. But when you see somebody and they feel like they're a part of, and they feel like you believe in them and that they mm-hmm. have somebody in that corner, like, I don't ever forget the times I was calling people and no one answered, you know, like when nobody was there, like when I felt all alone, like I will never forget those moments. Yeah. And, um, you know, today I get to wake up with a purpose. Mm-hmm. I get to help people. I don't think I've worked a day in the last six, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Like I, I get to wake up with a force of like today's, you know, I'm going to try to help this person get over this obstacle, face this adversity, and show them that they can do it. And I get to use, like, the different things that I've been through, the ups and downs of my journey as, like, that launch pad. And, uh, you know, it's been a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, I got two kids. I got full custody of my 13-year-old son, which for any man in any state, but especially Massachusetts, is extremely difficult to get custody of you. Um, who's he's absolutely incredible. He's an animator, got a YouTube channel he's trying to build. Um, I'm wicked proud of him that at 13 nice. years old, he already has that. Like, I'm gonna chase a passion. Nice. And uh, my daughter wants to be a singer, she's eight, she's beautiful. She is absolutely a handful. She's my Sour Patch kid, <laughs> she's been reincarnated. She uh, you know, she started a rock fight with her friends hit her friend in the face with a rock and said, Oh, I didn't know that was going to hurt. Like she's a savage. <laughs> she's absolutely insane. And then she'll come and bat her eyes and be like, I didn't know daddy, but I love you. I'm like, All right, you got that. <laughs> even at her. It's crazy. How, you how can you, how can you be mad at that, man? I can't, I can't, <laughs> you know, she wants to be a singer. So, you know, we, we drive around in the car singing, belting out lyrics. Nice. She thinks it's cool. You know, that I whether I'm on the radio or I shout her out, like yeah. that's my little baby girl. You know, I got my own house, which I went from homeless to owning my own home. Mm-hmm. I own two sober houses. Um, you know, not to like just talk about material things, but the fact is I had absolutely nothing. Right. You know, coming into recovery, I had maybe a a stop and shop bag with like some uh an extra pair of underwear and some dusty, crusty socks. Like I literally had nothing coming into it. So to be able to like look around at some of the things that I have now, like I'm beyond grateful that I I even have the opportunity to do some of these things. Yeah. And, you know, I try to I try to push the knowledge that I've gained over my time onto others and try to help them build their credit, get into a position that they can own homes and like do a lot of things that we're not taught and that Mm -hmm. we're also, you know, not even looked at as being able to attain these things. Right. Like I, not that I, recovery is huge, but I want to see people thrive on top of their recovery. Yeah. And like some of the people that I've come across in life are the most talented, hardworking, dedicated individuals that like will go above and beyond, give the shit out the back, shoes off their feet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just one of the dopest parts about being part of, of such a, uh, incredibly unique community. Yeah, So. Man.
0: Wow, what a, what a story, brother! You know that's yeah, uh, that's, a
1: little, little all over the place. From that, time to that's time. okay, That was the cliff
0: notes. Yeah, no, that's that's good, man. You know, um, just just so awesome to see everything that has gone on in your life, right? I can I can relate to a lot of it, man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you made even made the statement about how resilient we are as addicts. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I've I've always told my my groups and my clients. This is one of the most resilient groups of people you will ever meet in your life. We have some of the most talented people in the world, and we have some of the most force-driven, passionate people when it comes to something. When they lock onto that passion, man, yeah. there's it's nothing that can get in your way except exactly. for yourself.
1: Exactly. And that's well, that's like one of the biggest things that I talk to people about is the fact that I was able to overcome my addiction gives me the the, the – the belief in myself that whatever you put in front of me, I'm going to be able to overcome yeah. it, get through it, get around it. I'm going to figure out a way to to overcome any obstacle on my path. Right. You know, and it's that resiliency. And then like when you're faced with adversity, being able to fight back mm-hmm. and not give up, you know, yeah, like because that's something that, that, that I know is a character trait that I possess. And I'm, yeah. I'm very grateful for that.
0: You know, because I mean, it's it's in that active addiction where we have proven ourselves to be unreliable yeah. <laughs> to everyone else except for us, right? Because we had to maintain our, our addiction. Yeah,
1: we're, we're very reliant for our needs. Right. We will do any and everything to get what we need.
0: Exactly. And now we can take all that energy that we've put into trying to maintain that lifestyle and trying to maintain the high and trying to not get dope sick and trying to do all these things, right? And now we can take the energy and we can put it towards positive things in our lives. Yeah. And, you know, I've always said, man, you can put an addict out in the middle of the desert with nothing but the clothes on their back. They're going to come back with either a bag of dope or a bottle.
1: Yeah. We're going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out, man. Out.
0: I'm going to come back with something in my hand. Mm hmm. And, you know, and that's, that's even how I I look at life now and, you know, going in through treatment, I went in to put myself back into school when I was in IOP treatment saying that, you know, I'm going to get into this field and I'm going to become a counselor. And, you know, and you look at all these, these different things and it led me into podcasting and it led me into being a clinical supervisor, you know, with, with just four years of recovery under my belt. And I've already made all of these, you know. These accomplishments in my life. Mm-hmm. And like you said, not to talk about the material things, but dude, fuck that because I didn't have shit when I got sober, yeah. man. And so I'm proud of the material, some of the material things that I've and the accomplishments that I've been able to, you know, do. I bought my yeah. first car, man, you know, seven miles oh, yeah. on it. And, it's and it's a dope car too. Like, you know, and I'm able to maintain the payments and do all these things mm-hmm. that I wasn't able to do before. Cause I always had, you know, like a car that belonged to my dad or a car that belonged mm-hmm. to my mom or, you know, bought it like a used car that had 125,000 miles on it. And you're just like, well, fuck man, how long is it going to be until this car shit beds on you and you're going to be walking around and taking the bus. Yep. So, you know, the material things for me, man, uh, I, I, I get where people are saying the, the recovery is the material. I get it because one but, of the things
1: that I don't I, – I'm not trying to speak from ego on it. Yeah. But when you look back at the couches, the basements, right? like even in recovery, like I got out of the halfway house, I was in a sober house. I slept on a twin mattress on the floor. Yeah. No box spring, no bed frame. All my clothes were mm-hmm. laid out in the room because it had no – there were no dresses.
0: Yeah.
1: I didn't have the furniture in yeah. that house because it was brand new. You know, like I don't ever – Ever want to take for granted that that's where my my addiction leads me is to back right. into situations like that community living like I'm never one of the the main motivating factors of me staying clean is I don't want fish stick Fridays ever again <laughs> I'll be able to eat what I want when I want it and I'm not I'm not eating state issued fish in my state run program right? or in jail like I'm all set with having to deal with that you know
0: yeah absolutely man. Well, dude, it's, it's been awesome to have you on the show, brother mm-hmm. um, we, we got one section up here I, I, I usually yeah. don't tell the guests about this um, That's cool. But we're going to do a little rapid-fire questions for you
1: That's
0: fine <laughs> All right, man All right, are you ready?
1: Yeah All right, Firework. what
0: is the best non-curse word, one-word insult? Yeah. Non-curse, insult, one-word Yeah I don't have them. All right. Come on, brother. You're Jeez, from Boston. This should be. <laughs>
1: scumbag. Yeah, right. Okay. All I'm right. No scumbag for this. Okay. Rapid fire. I got to be quick.
0: Yeah, there you go. There you go. All right. Describe your style in one word.
1: Lothensive.
0: Awesome. I love that, man. What is your go-to lazy dinner for the family?
1: Andrea's Pizza. All A right. Pizza.
0: Nice, man. Nice. All right here's a personal one how often do you floss and we're not talking about dancing either man
1: (laughs) i don't floss that
0: you don't floss that often all right hopefully your dentist is not listening to the show brother yeah all right
1: place all these (laughs) if we were
0: to walk into your bedroom right now would your bed be made no (laughs) all right what is the last craft you have made
1: Um craft for something yeah. else not like not, i'm not going to use poetry but yeah i did a voiceover for my son's animation where i was the grim reaper
0: okay all right man cool
1: i like that digital it's not you know handcrafted okay
0: all right that's, Christian ross that's,
1: productions that's my guy
0: all right that's the good man. man we'll have a plug for him in our show
1: notes too brother
0: mm-hmm. all right man okay so uh Though this is an easy one, are you active on social media? That's a big yes. Yeah, I'm
1: pretty, I'm pretty active on social media. All
0: right. Media. <laughs> do you have any pets?
1: Yes, I got two huskies. All right, Jackson Stella. Nice, nice. Little house wolves.
0: <laughs> can you freestyle rap? Yeah, I don't all
1: do right. it often, but I can.
0: All right, all right. Do you, have you ever worn socks with sandals? Yes. Uh oh. But when it's
1: time, you gotta take the trash out before the to it comes, man. I ain't going out there barefoot myself my <laughs> Seventeen degrees out. Alright. Need a little bit of
0: warmth. Nice man. All right. Last question I always ask my guests. Who is your favorite Disney character?
1: Are we including Star Wars?
0: Absolutely, man. They are part Darth of the Disney Vader. family. Darth Vader?
1: Darth Vader. Ah, That's my favorite like character that one, of all yeah. time. Huh? That-
0: you got the imperial march for anybody on your uh on your ringtones no no, no. I, used to, no. So I used to have. i actually that.
1: can't have a ringtone because my phone goes off so much oh yeah it just stays on silent because i would piss off anybody <laughs> that would be around me
0: you know that's funny From
1: social media attacks phone calls right? business yeah man Yeah, it's a lot
0: yeah so. I, used to, I who's would, yours oh mine you know yeah. i really like um Man, there's there's just so many. Oh, since, so we're, throwing Wars, since you, we're throwing you know Star Wars. Since we're throwing Star Wars in there, man, okay. I would say Boba Fett.
1: Boba Fett? Yeah. Did you watch the finale? She's
0: savage, time? man. No, I haven't seen it yet. Ooh. I know. Don't okay. don't tell me. Don't I, tell me, man. I'm not don't saying tell me. nothing. Don't tell me.
1: Did you watch the last episode?
0: No, I'm like four episodes behind.
1: Oh, you are missing out. If you're know, a Star dude. Wars fan, you're missing out
0: on that. Well, I got I got hooked on this other show called Fringe, and um I, yeah. I got I had the Rona like Two weeks ago, and so I was home for two weeks, and so I binge watched that whole show, and okay. then it kind of threw me off on my other regular ones that I watch. But I, I Dude, you're yeah. missing,
1: if you're a okay. fan of Star Wars, right. the last couple of episodes have been insane.
0: Oh, all right, man. Yeah. I'm gonna go. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah, have to go catch man. up on that tonight, most definitely, brother. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. You know, you're over on the East Coast, and um, mm-hmm. it's about 9.06 right now for you, yeah, so. Sure. Really taking the time away from your family and out of your day to come on the uh, Drunken Worm podcast. Yeah. Hell yeah! Oh well, man,
1: it's all about trying to affect that one person. If we can inspire one person with this show, yeah, and they can get a little bit of hope, you never know what the results are going to be. So you know, I'm more than happy to try to step up, share my share a little bit of story, talk shop, give out my secrets of Darth Vader being my favorite Disney character. That's right. You know, spend some time, man. All right, get some brother. California love. That's right, man.
0: All right, and if anybody is interested in following the Drunken Worm podcast, uh, you can always check out our social media feeds. And if you're interested in seeing myself co-host on Thursday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, you can catch our live show on the Recovery Revolution live stream. We have the YouTube link in the show notes below, and we are also going to have the links for um, Matt's social media and also the Aftermath Treatment Center that he is the CEO of. And again, brother, it was really good to have you on the show, man.
1: Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, my man.
0: All right. I want to thank everybody for listening today. You have been listening to the Drunken Worm Podcast. We will be bringing you new content every week. If you would like to follow us, please hit that follow button on your favorite streaming app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeartRadio. You may also go to our website, thedrunkenwormpodcast.com, to learn more about the show, sign up for our email club, and visit our blog. If you would like to join the conversation on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also join Carl as he co-hosts the Recovery Revolution live show every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. All the information that was just mentioned will be listed in the show description with clickable links so that you don't miss a beat. Thank you again for joining us this week. Stay well, stay sober, and live your best life. Take care.